podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the Anfield Rap on Radio City Talk. Neil Atkinson with you for the next hour. Uh, we're going to be talking to a wide variety of people really for this show. Coming up, we're talking to Scott Murray about his book, The Title. Uh, also going to be talking to Becky Ayers about Liverpool Sound City moving back into the heart of the city, which is very exciting indeed. Uh, going to be talking to Michael Cox about his book, The Mixer, which is a look at 25 years of Premier League tactics and how that's impacted different managers at different times in different ways. A lot of Liverpool stuff in that book and in our chat. And lastly, I'm going to be talking to Heather Carroll about Liverpool ladies, two games games into the new season how's it all going that's everything that's to come this week on the Anfield Wrap uh, but we're going to start off uh, I went down to London to speak to Scott Murray about his book the title and we had a lovely time me and Scott to be honest with you handing over to yourself always a strange thing uh, but Radio City Talk hello Neil Atkinson uh, in London uh, on location uh, chatting away to <laughs> Scott Murray about his book the title the story of the first division and you know Scott we'll start with the size of the undertaking you decided you were going to write basically the history of football uh, <laughs> up to 1992 uh, and starting effectively well BC in a sense but certainly from from you know the 1860s yeah um, well it's kind of because we all I think we all know the Premier League story so it seemed like quite a quite a nice idea to like look at that package beforehand the first division and I was initially I was just going to do maybe 10 15 20 separate seasons spread over the piece and that would do and it would give you a rough idea of how things went but then I started looking into it and thought well I don't leave that out Uh, actually that's quite good and then after a while there's about three or four gaps where I think it's probably a bit unfair to leave Blackburn Rovers you know (laughs) like the 1910s out of it so you know I'll throw in a bit of that as well and in the end it just seemed hey you know what I'm just going to go for the kingpin do the lot you very much do and it, your classes right the way through it's an absolute ton of fun and I think that's the oh, most thanks. important thing to say about it is that it is it's I mean it's it's riotous in the early days firstly the idea that two <laughs> leagues were set up simultaneously and one didn't think to have home and away fixtures oh, yeah. uh, is, is just hysterical yeah like uh, I think it was set up about 10 days after they announced the football league it was called the combination and um yeah, as you say, there were no home and away fixtures. Um, they weren't even all, all the teams weren't even going to play each other. They just said, "I'll oh, play eight games." Yeah, that'll do. Um, just told them to go away and organise it themselves. And I mean, sure enough, it it doesn't get finished. It's it seems right in a sense. You know, you'll be, be Scottish yourself that the extent to which in in that early going, you know, that you've written such a book because in the early going, the influence of of the Scots on English football, on the success of English football is absolutely huge. And again, that comes through. But there was, I think, you know, it's in the Jonathan Wilson book about the idea of the Scottish way of playing. But yeah. just the sheer numbers of people who were pulled down from Scotland to a lord down by owners of football clubs, offering them good jobs and offering them good money to come and play in English football. It has a profound impact, doesn't it, on everybody? Well, completely. I mean, you know, they heavily influenced the first Preston side. Um and it helped Sunderland, who weren't uh, one of the original clubs that set up the football league, um, but because they were so close to Scotland, yeah, they could blag loads of the best players. And the problem is the football league wouldn't let them in um, because oh, you're a wee bit too far away. And you know, the football league's set up in the Midlands and in the Northwest, so. But, the, but in friendlies, they end up thrashing uh, William McGregor's Aston Villa. They end up thrashing the so-called Preston Invincible. So they kind of had to let them in in the end. There's something in that. I wanted to mention the North the East to you. That one of the things, again, it's 
we a lot of football talk becomes quite cliched and because it's cliched at times you presume that it isn't entirely true or isn't entirely accurate whereas again something that comes through the book is that when people talk about the northeast being a hotbed of football we're talking about something here that is literally been the case for a hundred years that there's the idea that the northeast is a hotbed of football is a 120 mm. year old idea and that therefore it is it it shouldn't you know it's easy at the minute looking at newcastle struggling one way or another sunderland down middlesbrough uh middlesbrough also in in, in the championship hall even if you want to throw them in but the point is is that people in the northeast have been going on mass to football matches for 120 years yeah and it was like a, a huge thing and a huge part of the culture and that football only really went down about as far as Birmingham, <laughs> as far south, until, you know, the Football League was maybe 20, 30 years old. I mean, Arsenal had the first club from London to win, and you're looking at, you know, that's in the 1930s, um, which kind of seems crazy, but it was very much a northern game. It was very much a, a, a Scottish game. I mean, Aston Villa were, were hugely... Um, you know, were hugely influenced by by Scottish football, and the football league was set up by William McGregor, their chairman, who was you know Scottish and bringing all these people down to to play for the club. I think it's it's it is that, and that's you know we do talk about things like what's football country and what isn't, and that, that I still sort of think that that remains today. I often say occasionally glibly, but I do sort <laughs> of mean it on shows. That sort of a lot of the football that matters in England. For some reason, it feels like it. It feels like it matters more in the northwest. That that titles and 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 you see the seeds for all of this through this book. And you can say the north, but because of what's gone on in in, in Yorkshire and uh, northeastern Midlands football in the mm. last in the last few years, you know, in the last twenty twenty five years, it does seem as though the sides who've had these roots that you can pull right the way through from the nineteen hundreds are in fact those sorts of. Those sides in that area, and now it's Liverpool, Manchester United, Everton, Manchester City. They're the sides who are sort of in that top seven. And even despite all the Arsenal success in the 30s, they do sort of somewhere in my psyche feel like interlopers. <laughs> maybe I'm, bi- I'm, maybe I'm obviously biased, but you know they do feel a bit like you know I do feel a little bit like London's always just half playing at it, whereas everyone else yeah, is yeah. all in. Well, no, there's a there's a definite complete flavour um, of you know northwest football. From from the start, and obviously with Preston, you know, winning early doors. But you know, you have a team like Manchester City, even though they only ever won two first division titles and didn't win their first until like the mid nineteen thirties. Um, you know, they're they're in the story pretty much from the get go. Yeah. Um, you know, Liverpool is a city where um, they're just before Manchester is a city, but it's very much that that region and all these clubs. Um, you, you know, they're the ones that start telling the story. There's that, there's that whiff of, you know, that go, that whiff of going to the match. You can see it, you can taste it. You yeah. know, I mean, it's we're sort of harking back to the Lowry thing, I guess, is a is a cliche, but there's something in it. I mean, what I would say um, on the flip side is that say a team like you know Chelsea often get berated, for example, you ain't got no history. Oh, they've got tons, and it's all the way through the book. But there's you know there is loads of it, and weirdly, like um, in the in the nineteen thirties, they were acting in exactly the same way that they did in the Abramovich era. They were flinging money, huge yep. sums of money, at players. They would buy Huey Gallagher from Newcastle, Alex Jackson from Huddersfield. You know these were the title winning stars. They get Lawton, is it a demo buyer to Lawton at some point? Oh, no, he goes uh, to Notts County, yeah, which is yeah, weird. Yeah, that's, just, that's sort of strange thing after the, after the Second World War. But, um, 
But no, it's just, you know, Chelsea are acting up like that even in the 30s. But they, the thing is, they just don't have any success with it. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in that terms of balance, it's, it's that, you know, it's flipping it around and saying, well, actually, this isn't quite what you think it was. But I would say, um, yeah, ultimately, if you had to, like, really boil the bones down, it's essence of, essence of Northwest. It, it, the other thing that also strikes me when you're writing the book is it must be difficult for you because going from from 1880 until until, until 1992 in essence mm. you obviously know that the reader has more of a sense of for instance Kenny Alpleish's Liverpool side of 87 88 so yeah. what you're having to do so what i think is really interesting in the book is you at times you're telling the story you you're almost in anticipating the reader i i found it really really informative that's one of the reasons why i really liked it it told me loads of things i didn't know but it tells me, for instance, lots of things I don't know about the Wednesday going right the way back to the start of the story because mm. I don't know much about that full stop. Whereas it tells me things I don't know much about around the Busby Babes. When I do know the basic story of the Busby Babes, I have an understanding of that. I have an understanding mm. of how good they were and all of that sort of stuff and, the, and the, that the terrible thing that happens. But what I don't have is you're, you're then adding more and more context into that. And that must have been something to be you know difficult to stay on top of whilst you were writing the book. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I mean, the, the, the Busby Babes is a good example of it because... We sort of look at that story now through a very, you know, we look back at it and the tragedy um, sort of consumes all. The tragedy, um, the, the sort of aftermath of that tragedy actually at the time is kind of not talked about anymore and it's very weird. And while there was, there was obviously a lot of sympathy, it was very much right, here's maybe a few weeks worth of sympathy, now that's over with, now you have to... Uh, for want of a better phrase, man up and start being Manchester United again. And they got involved in a huge brawl at Burnley where they were accused of being of acting like teddy boys, I think, <laughs> I think the phrase was. And Geoffrey Green, who wrote for The Times and went on to write um, Manchester United's centenary history, so he was United-minded. But he wrote in The Times, you know, United have to, you know, there's only a limit to sympathy. They have to stop getting involved in these matches that will end up in... In, in in huge brawls. And, I mean, obviously now you would look and, and say, well, you know, here are a load of players that are probably suffering from post-traumatic stress. Yeah, these, these are broken men who were caught yeah. through this mill. But in 1958, which is kind of closer to the war, and I guess it was just a different mentality, it was a little bit, no, you've got to get on with this now. And then also United comes second the very season after Munich. So it's not quite... It, the story doesn't quite have the rhythm the narrative rhythm that we think it has now, where there's Munich and then 10 years later there's some titles in the European Cup. It's not quite as cut and dried. And I like sort of looking around those little nooks and crannies. Uh, it's, it's in there. It's all great. And the other thing that I really like as well is that you're telling the story of these ebbs and flows that take place up until about 61. Mm. And then we end up from about 61 onwards. I have that as the line because it's the Spurs double winning side. And then from about right. 61 onwards... We settled. There's. We're going to come on. We're going to have a separate conversation on the uh, subscriber service about things like Ipswich winning the league in '62. But broadly speaking, you actually tell the story really nicely of how football settles into the big five as was up until big six, if you include Leeds, because they're always there or thereabouts in some way until about '92. But that settles there and then. So yeah. we've got sort of this period where everyone gets a bit of a turn. Everyone's involved. A number of sides all win the title, and then of the big sort of five or six, they all win the league at some point and they all established themselves as, as football and powers but then by 92 you've told the story as to how no 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 there were these powers by that point and that's a really interesting story to tell too 
Yeah, and again, the the narrative isn't completely linear because obviously Spurs win that double. There's the around the same time that the minimum wage is lifted yeah. and the retaining transfer systems, and you know the bigger clubs from the bigger cities start to dominate. But you still have Ipswich winning the league. You still have Derby winning a couple of leagues. Sort of Nottingham Forest yeah. winning a league. But that kind of begin to become like exceptions that prove the rule. I mean, 10 years before Spurs winning the league, or maybe 12 years before, you had Portsmouth winning back-to-back titles. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just crazy to contemplate that now. it's not. I mean, I think that's even in a different realm to Leicester winning the Premier League or anything like that. It's This, this wouldn't happen now. Um, but yeah, definitely something, you know, TV came in and it affected the game... You know, people sort of finger the Premier League and Sky is changing everything and obviously took things up a gear. But this is shifting back to, uh, you know, Granada starting in 55 and starting to show Man U in the European Cup and then, you know, yep. trying to show Black Blackpool v Bolton in the, the sort of big live Saturday night game in 1960, which lasted about two weeks. But, you know, the cat was out of the bag then is the point. Okay, so we're going to have more. We're going to have a further chat about this fa- fabulous book uh, of Scott's. So it is uh, the title, the story of the first division, uh, the story of the first division, uh, and you know Liverpool supporters. We're meant to talk about this sort of stuff all the time, so we might as well know what we're talking about uh, if we're going to go down the route. It's at Bloomsbury, and it'll be available in all the obvious places. Um, the story of the first division. Thanks, Scott, for taking the time, and we'll have more of a chat later. Yeah, thanks. Great to speak to Scott. Uh, after the break, I'll be talking to Becky Ayres about Liverpool Sound City is moving back slap bank into the city centre. Uh, how did they come to that decision, and how excited are they about the prospects of things to come? Don't go anywhere. The Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk, and I'm going to go over in a second to talk, talk to Becky Ayres about Liverpool Sound City and what's going on there. But before I do that, this is Neil Atkinson, and this week I'm made up to be in conversation with Martin Fitzgerald, the author of Ruth and Martin's album Club. And if you didn't read Ruth and Martin's album club whilst it was online uh, it seems to become a book a fabulous book uh, on Unbound Publishing and it was this wonderful way of looking at albums anew and also taking a fresh way of going into that and reminding people that these albums are made by humans and that at the time of people making the albums they didn't know they were making in inverted commas classic albums and it was a really refreshing look at all of that so I'm really looking forward to speaking to Martin who you'll have heard on the Anfield rap stuff we, we, we love him a great deal uh, and we're going to be doing that on Thursday in Waterstones uh, Thursday in Waterstones in Liverpool one uh, and tickets are still available for this you can still get tickets online if you just go to Waterstones search Waterstones Liverpool one Ruth and Martin's album club and I'll tweet it out as well and have been through the week uh, a standard ticket is £3 uh, and it will start at half six on Thursday so it's the first perfect after work little thing to do if you can get down to Waterstones Liverpool one it'll be great I'm really looking forward to it so feel free to mooch along get a copy of the book as well if you're not able to uh, but it's the absolute business there's loads of great stuff in the book and, I, and me and Martin are determined to have a fantastic time with this one uh, so yeah get yourself down Waterstones Liverpool 1 on the th- on Thursday the 12th at half past 6 and we can all have a nice pint afterwards I think Martin's very amiable certainly if you catch him in the right mood and if you're selling some books listen uh, that's the first bit of our music thing but more importantly than, than me rabbiting away is uh Becky Ayres of Sound City came in to speak to us about them moving back into Liverpool City Centre and what went on there and uh, this is this is how we we, we got on Welcome back to the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Neil Atkinson still with you. And now talking to Becky Ayres about Sound City 2018. It feels strange talking about 2018. It sort of hit me, Becky, that we need to start talking about 2018, whether we like it or not this week, because it's very much moving across the horizon. And the Sound City announcement was part of that. 
Yes, it was. And it was um, quite it was exciting for us to think about 2018 as well, even though it seems a long way off. Um, it's something we're really, really excited about because we are going to be moving Sound City back into the city centre of Liverpool. It's... It, the 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 experiment down by the dockland is yeah there was a you had a couple of issues there there was issues with sound bleed there was issues mm. with the wind but more than anything else did you just sort of feel as though for the for the way the festival had grown up that you just felt a little bit out of the action more than anything else did you feel as though the idea that you weren't embedded in the city because I know your offices are in are in the Baltic area yeah. you're, you're, it's not like you you work very much Sound City is done from the centre of Liverpool mm. so did you almost feel a little bit like we wanted to get back and get get back on top of ourselves a bit yeah well I think you know when we moved to out to the North Liverpool docks um, that was part of us wanting to change things up and to really um, you know do something different and we were really excited about the development of that area which since then has you know developed even further so that was you know it was a great three years and like you said there were some challenges with sound with them um, some of the sound from stages and with um, with the land sometimes and I think you know we came to the 10th year and we thought actually the city of Liverpool has changed so much and there's so many more venues again now and we can actually move back and you know that was as much as anything about changing changing things again and also listening to our audience because we have had so much feedback from people that said they love the emerging talent and discovery side of it and we thought we feel that we're better able to do that in the city and to work with lots more people collaboratively as you say because physically we moved out of the city before there is you mentioned that i mean i one of the things that struck me on the poster um was um, the, the anfield rappers on the poster so thank you very much for putting us on uh, but no worries. one of the things that struck me on the poster was the number of names of mm. other either in the process of becoming established or relatively established or very established names within the city so africa oea being a really mm. good example of you know this idea of, of of acting as a hub and bringing all of this together which i know is something that you've always been personally really really committed to as well in terms of the developmental stuff that sound mm. city does that we don't talk about enough did you want to sort of say right how can we how can we involve as many different sort of stakeholders as possible to make this fantastic because that's what that poster looks like to me yeah that was it was very much um that Neil actually because you know there's some really really incredible um people and organizations in Liverpool that are doing fantastic things and as you say I mean Africa OYE is such an amazing example of that they're bringing so much diverse talent over from so many parts of the world every year and they've got a really unique take on how um you know on artists that are coming through and then you know there's new um people like wrong festival which is they're doing amazing things with quite you know heavy music and they're quite a new you know a new um festival organizer and you know we just we feel that with sound city because it's about um championing loads of new music and you know we've had people in the past like ed sheeran and florence and the machine and bastille um you know we want to find those people next you know the equivalent of those people that are happening next year and it's only by working with like really really good people across loads and loads of different genres and um sizes and spectrums um i think that's that's the only way that we can really truly do that one of the things that actually struck me the other day because I was listening to a new single was, for instance, that in Sound City, and I think it was in 2014, 
I saw Lizzo in the basement of the shipping forecast. Yes. And Lizzo now is, you know, she's she's done loads of stuff with MTV and all this sort of stuff. That it's when you're talking about emerging talent, you're not just simply talking about the, just about Liverpool either. It is the idea no. you mentioned Africa OEA there. You know, to when I stop to think about that now, when you, I, I see Lizzo playing festival crowds in front of fifteen thousand people mm. in the states, and I just think this is that's a, a really mad, strange, unlikely thing that happened. But it happened because of this commitment, not to the idea of three really good headliners and then. We just mm. sort of see what we can get for the rest, but the idea that no, every single it, it felt like the, every the desire was every single aspect of that was to be was to be special. Every stage, every night was to be special. Yeah, for for sure. I think you know that's something that's one of the proudest moments for us. I know, um, for example, we had John Talabot, who's a really yep. renowned DJ. He plays in um, what was well in the arts club, which was Inc at the time a few years ago, and he, there were a handful of people watching him. But, you know, he was there and um, he came back again the next year, I think. But, you know, that was a really special moment for me as well in the same way. And he's, you know, from Catalonia. So we've we, it's always been very much about kind of looking, searching the corners of the earth for all of those real gems and the people that, you know, and bands that are going to do really well and go on to greater things. You say on the poster that things will be announced very soon. Um, I mean, the other thing to point out as well to people who are listening, not only is it back in the city, but it's also uh, the 5th and 6th of May as well. It's the yes. first bank holiday now in May, not the second one. It does feel as though John, you're victimising John Gibbons, who's, who moved the time he was going away and thought he'd be able to go to Sound City this year. But, you know, forget John, he'll be fine. Um, it is, you're doing it just across the, across the course of that bank holiday weekend. And it is the idea, I think, that you... It, the other thing that you're looking to sort of try to do as well, I think, is start the summer. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, that time in May is a really exciting time because it's before um, a lot of the major festivals start. And we want to be at the start of that with some of the best, um, you know, new artists. And also, um, you know, with just with a new festival model that's really, you know, will excite people. And it's, you know, it's just, it's really exciting to be at that time in May because there's a lot of artists that are wanting to do new things and there's people out on tour. And I know that at the moment we're looking at several um, artists that will be headliners that have got new music out then. And I think, you know, we can't say what they are, who they are yet, but it's going to be exciting. Is there um, the other one that also uh, occurred to me when it was all announced and was, was shifting right the way through as well was... Uh, you've you've done the the, uh, the the super early bird stuff, uh, but you're also doing before even the start of the festival. I noticed that there's also the idea that you're going to be doing little one nighters in places as well. It isn't just focused around that 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 weekend. It's that there's one nighters in the run up to it now as well. You're looking to constantly sort of be alive. Yeah, that's right. Well, we we're going to be doing um, satellite versions of Sound City in towns around um, the the north of England. And the idea of that is to work really closely with different towns that have got, um, you know, kind of probably a history of music and a real, have got a real kind of burning desire to kind of develop a scene and to, to do Sound Cities, well, to take the Sound City model there and not to homogenise anything, but to actually work in partnership with different um, people on in different towns to create and cultivate music scenes in them. So again, that's something we're in talks with a few places with at the moment, just because, you know, we feel that across the north of England, there's so many amazing places for that have had music or have got really good developing music. It does seem like everything you're saying, the centre of it is the idea of greater, more collaboration. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think I think that's that's it because I think you know by virtue of us moving physically from the city centre, I think it felt that we were a bit, a bit, you know, kind of on a different outpost in the last three years, and that was great for what we were establishing. Because I know, I mean, even if we'd wanted to be where we were um, before, um, you know, Everton's moving there. You know, dare I say that word? they're going to be moving there so I think we kind of paved the way in in some ways for you know things like that to happen so you know for for us to move back and to be able to work really closely with different um you know lots and lots of different people that have all got a voice that's that's always the most exciting thing so the ticket price is now 55 pounds on the early bird wristbands you get 55 pounds there and there's obviously a transaction fee that applies but that you know again we're talking about someone standing the other day they went to dizzy rascal for 25 quid and i thought that was actually quite reasonable these days uh that and that was just for dizzy and he only did an hour the idea here being you know that 55 pounds for for two full days of live music uh in liverpool will be pretty exciting definitely i think when we've when we've got the lineup together and when we start announcing, um, I think we're looking forward then to um, people being excited about. When's the, the first announcement? It Can you tell me? Well, it'll be quite. It'll be quite soon. Um, it depends because we've got to. We've got quite a few acts to, that we need to book, so sometimes they take a little bit longer than others. Are you so looking to announce? You're, of, you're looking to announce a number at once, are you? Then not just um, one or two. Probably, yeah, because I think that's that's always a bit more. You know, people can then see what they've what they've bought into then, which is better. Excellent. Uh, well, it's really kind of Becky to come in and talk to us, and we'll t- be talking again about Sound City and all of the collaboration stuff on there as well. I do sort of think that's worth uh, emphasising, really, going right the way through the uh, the idea of everybody who's working on it. Forget us for a second and instead see that there's Africa OEA, yeah, there's BBC introducing in both Manchester and Merseyside, there's Bido Lito, who we do stuff with, who's fantastic. Uh, Greg Wilson uh, gets a mention, Evol, uh, Heavenly Records, uh, Jane Weaver, Kendall Calling. I'm just picking them out at random, by the way. This isn't all of them. Mellow Tone, uh, the NMA Music Week. Um, Glastonbury's, uh, Glastonbury Silver Haze, Get Into This, Skeleton Key, uh, Harvest Sun, Louder Than War, uh, and yes, we do get our names on there as well, which is very, very kind, and there is the quietest too. There's loads and loads of fantastic stuff. It'll be different class Sound City this year, back in the heart of the city, the 5th and 6th of May. You can find it all online, liverpoolsoundcity.co.uk. 55 quid, get your tickets now. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Back very soon indeed. Always good to speak to Becky, and it is indeed exciting about Sound City. Listen, coming up to 7 o'clock now here on the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. After the break, I will be talking to Michael Cox about his book, The Mixer, uh, which is a tactical history of the Premier League, the first of its type, 25 years of the Premier League. Michael's looked right the way through all the different themes across 25 chapters. It's a fantastic read, uh, and we're going to be talking to him just after this. Welcome back to the Anfield Wrap. Neil Atkinson here, and we've been doing a varied show this week, something a little bit different than just talking about the Reds, not least because they keep letting us down in different ways, shapes and forms. There'll be loads and loads of that talk next week leading into the massive game against Manchester United, and Manchester United come up a lot, obviously, in Michael Cox's fabulous book, The, uh, the Mixer, uh, which I can't recommend highly enough, uh, and I went down to London to speak to him, and we, uh, we, we got onto all sorts of different topics, and, and here's what we, what we talked about. Radio City Talk indeed. I'm with Michael Cox, the author of The Mixer and the man behind Zonal Marking in a in a London bar. Uh, and it's five pounds a drink, but we're being philosophical about it, uh, making the best of it. You know what it's like in that London, he says over to Liverpool. But I want to talk to Michael about his book, The Mixer. And firstly, let's start with a quick outline of it, really. It's a tactical history of the Premier League across 25 years. And my first question really is sort of what you were looking to achieve and, and how you went about it. Yeah, I think the first thing was to write a history of the Premier League. I mean, it's the biggest league around. It's been going 25 years, and no one had really had a stab at writing a cohesive history of it. There'd been books about the Premier League 
usually talking about the financial development, the business development, which of course has been a massive thing in the sporting development, but no one had really looked at the um, the football on the pitch, which is obviously what I kind of write about, what I kind of specialise in. Um, so that was the main idea. And um, I think a secondary idea was also just to make make tactics seem interesting. You know, talking about tactics and strategy, it's got a reputation as being dry and very mm. boring and about numbers. And, and I don't think it is. I think it's about personalities. I think it's about people. And so I kind of tried to mix the two. It's a tactical history, but it's also you know, about the characters involved. Well, that will come through onto that in general, really, because that's a really interesting thing that you did do. The other thing I noticed with how you structured it was that it was it's broadly linear, mm-hmm. but it's also in chunks. It's thematic. So, for instance, you'll talk about Pulis across two or three years rather than talk about Pulis as a one-season thing, if you know what I mean. You'll talk about the development of Pulis. That's the thought process. And I think it's a really interesting way to go about it. It's not quite, as I say, it's not quite a season-by-season thing. It's 25 chapters, but it, uh, it pulls itself along quite nicely. Yeah, definitely. I think that was an important thing. Um, I mean, to me, even as a kind of casual observer, before I started writing the book, there were very obvious moments where I think the Premier League changed. So, for example, 2004, Mourinho and Benitez come over, having just won major European trophies. And Premier League, certainly the top-level matches between the top four, just changed completely. It goes from being really open, really frantic, 100 miles an hour, to being quite cagey, quite defensive. And that was all because of the managerial influence. And you look now, I mean... The thing everyone talks about now in big games or when assessing big teams is the pressing. I can't really remember many people talking about pressing even five or six years ago. It was it was something people knew what it was, but it wasn't the major factor like it is now. And I think just compartmentalising that and breaking history down into eras was quite important. The other thing, I mean, you've you've written a zonal market and you've written for for, for a variety for newspapers and and for for, for, for magazines. Then that struck me, and, and you've tended to do that about specific games, and that's where I know you work from. Certainly from zonal market. And I think that you know, you've shifted into a long form here, but then even within there, I think that you know the analysis around specific games remains really, really strong. Quite early in the book, because it's quite early in the Premier League, there's a really, really good look at a Man United game at Norwich City, which is something which a game that I'd completely forgotten. And you you're trying to dissect that really. Was there ever a temptation to look at 25 games? No, not really. I mean, certainly not for this book. I think it could make an interesting follow-up book. But actually, one of the few books that had been written previously on the Premier League. Uh, by Jim White, that's Jim White Telegraph fame, not of Yellow Tie fame, um, is a kind of, I think it's 10 or 12 games, look at it, you know, looking at the history of the Premier League in 10 games, so even if I had thought of that, would have had to avoid it anyway, to be honest. But the, 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 just to use the, the Man U at Norwich City example there, that, you know, that day United aren't able to select what's been the first choice side throughout the year, they're going for, I think it's the first title this one, and in the end up going with Kinchelskis up top, centre forward, tons and tons of pace, and you go through that the way in which that day, you know, we talk, you've mentioned pressing there. The other thing that's a lot of talk about is counter-attacking football. And that day, United, not quite from nowhere, but that's that's a version of that United side that everyone remembers with the counter-attacking and the pace. And if they don't quite remember the games themselves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the kind of game which I had kind of forgotten about personally. I mean, the interesting thing is that it's uh, five days before that Sheffield Wednesday game where United scored two late goals and everyone cites that as the key moment. But yeah, five days before was this, you know, the most incredible counter-attacking performance you'll ever see. And Norwich were really good at the time. And Norwich were going for the title, yeah. It was a three-way race between them, uh, Villa and Manchester United. And I think Norwich had been nine points clear in December. And were just playing brilliant passing football. And United just hit them with speed. United don't try and compete in the midfield zone. They just sit back and then go through Giggs, Konchelskis, Lee Sharp. And I think to a certain extent that sets the tone for the Premier League over the next few years because it's how United come to play and everyone kind of tries to copy United because they won you know, so many of the 
the first three Premier League titles. Okay, I mean the Liverpool elements within the book, it's noticeable. You, you mentioned Benitez already there that the, it's a sea change moment. You end up, I think, writing about Benitez about across almost a chapter and a half really in terms of the when the book's done and. But the other one that you write, you cover as well at length, and I want to go on to why you didn't write about one of the other ones, but you, you write about Rodgers. By, by current standards, we're going to have a chat separately uh, for subscribers uh, on this one, but by contemporary standards in, a t- in terms of British and certainly English football writing, you seem exceptionally fond and excited by Rodgers more so than, than the general sort of demeanour of many people. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think he's a really interesting character. He's, he's obviously a slightly peculiar guy which I think people focus on but you know one big tactical shift in the Premier League around 2011-12 was everyone just became obsessed with Barcelona and Guardiola and and Spain and just started trying to play possession football and what Swansea did I think kind of took that to new heights in Premier League terms they'd come up from the Championship playing that way and you know I remember seeing them at the Emirates and they went to Arsenal and they played Arsenal off the park they didn't win the game in terms of the passing it was magnificent and I think it's really interesting how Rodgers completely bought into that and then how he kind of sacrificed it midway through that campaign where Liverpool nearly won the league because he realised he had three incredibly quick players and just playing on the counter-attack was was the way to go but I think in terms of his Swansea side and his Liverpool side there aren't many other managers who've had two teams in the Premier League era that are so distinct and so I think important to the history of the Premier League and you chose to gloss over Hunier, which is interesting. I mean, you can't write about everything, and I'll get that out the way for you. You're not allowed to say that. You can't say, well, I can't write about everything. Why did you choose, choose to gloss over Hunier? Do you just simply think what, what he did was just tactically not that interesting, not that distinctive? I think it was reasonably interesting. I think the, the thing with Hunier is, and when I was looking at how to kind of categorise him, for me, he almost was half Wenger, who obviously is covered because of his you know, diet and yeah. physicality thing, and then half Benitez in terms of how the, how the team set out. He loved a really compact side. They were quite defensive. Um, there were, you know, some of the more memorable Liverpool games from that period. That game against Alaves, for example, was bonkers, but it was completely out of keeping with yeah. the way Liverpool had played. And so I think just um, to a certain extent, his his qualities were covered when when looking at other characters, really. And the other thing that you you mentioned at the very start when we started talking about this that you're also looking to talk about characters as well. That it's not a dry. You know, in fact, there isn't. I was, I was expecting there to be graphics and things like that, and there isn't a graphic in it right the way through, which I think, I think is quite interesting. Um, so, you, you are talking about the personalities and how, at certain moments, players come into the Premier League, come into certain sides, and change everything. So, Cantona is a prime example, but it's not only Cantona. You've also, you also detail Zola and Bergkamp within there as well, and also that their personality types have a knock-on effect with Liverpool. You can argue that Torres, Suarez slash Sturridge, Arsenal with Henri, the idea that a player comes in and changes everything, that's, that seems to be less and less the case now where it does seem as though you know, managers are buying for their system at an astonishing level and not taking punts. Do you think that that's gone completely? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, everyone talks about managerial philosophies these days. I don't, I mean... It's not less exciting to you, because I would think it'd be more in your element. But the idea of adapting and changing to circumstances yeah. is also in your elements, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's more interesting when tactics are based around players, to be honest, rather than managers. Manager, you kind of know what you're getting when, when, you, when he gets appointed. But yeah, to go through those, those sides and just see Arsenal before and after Burkamp was fascinating. And I think it was a really interesting quote, which I included in the book um, from Jeremy Carragher who says he was so jealous of those teams getting those players and he thinks that Liverpool didn't have that man he talks about Yuri Lipman who obviously came yeah. when he was probably three or four years past his best and I think Harriger says you know if we got Lipman in a few years earlier 
that would have been the game changer for Liverpool in terms of style of play, maybe in terms of the whole philosophy of the club as well. And with this current club of managers, therefore, what it does do is it puts them even more front and centre. And I think that's, again, and I think it's again something that you want to dwell on, is that players... Tactics about players as much as it's about managers, and yeah. that now that the managers are fr- so front and centre, you love the. I could tell you love the quote in the book that uh, the day Cantona turns up and trains for two days at Manchester United, and there's a quote from one of the coaches who says it just changed everything. Yeah. Everything they were doing, not both in terms of the standards they expected of one another, but also the way they were going to approach games. Yeah. And I think that that I, I think that we, it's a shame not to have players front and centre because it's players who do the thing, who make the thing happen for us. The thing that we get excited about. Yeah, completely. And I think, uh, you know, a key feature is that Ferguson, for example, when he had Cantona, he embraced Cantona. You know, Cantona had been playing at Leeds. Howard Wilkinson didn't fit into his style, whereas Ferguson completely embraced him in the same way Wenger embraced, uh, embraced Burkamp. And at the end of the day, it is all about players, especially in the attacking third. You know, defensively, it's about structure and organisation. Going forward, you need big talents. And I think, you know, the history of the Premier League is about big talents, really, from Cantona to Ronaldo to Luis Suarez. OK. Uh, always good to spend time talking about this sort of stuff with Michael. And we're going to be doing it at length uh, for subscribers. So you can get that, as you know, £5 a month, the Anfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe. But we're here to sell this book as well. This book is really worth reading. It's called The Mixer. It's available now. I got it on Kindle. Uh, but you can also get it in hard copy and get yourself around. Who's the publisher? Uh, Harper Collins. Harper Collins. Uh, so you can find all of that out and you know where to buy books from. So get to it. Uh, <laughs> this is the Anfield Rap Lawn a bit. Always good to speak to Michael Cox and his book, The Mixer, is available now. It's well worth your time and effort if you can get the opportunity to do so. Uh, very much a rewarding read. I was very pleased, in fact, by how much I enjoyed it. It's always the terrifying thing when you're speaking to people about the books that you might not like it, but when you genuinely do, you can always relax a little bit and enjoy chatting away, and we very much did. Um, but now on to Liverpool ladies who've had a, a mixed start to the season. An emphatic victory against Everton in the Merseyside derby, 2-0, uh, was followed up by an even more emphatic defeat against Reading at home uh, 3-0 um, and they have Chelsea the runaway leaders next I'm joined by Heather Carroll really to, to, to spend 10-15 minutes picking the bones out of what's gone on so far this season Heather as we get closer to half past seven and and just you know it's, it came as a massive surprise to me that Reading result I'd seen Liverpool against Everton they looked to me in really good shape Everton were very aggressive uh, first half especially there was a genuine desire I think to ruffle Liverpool's feathers there but Liverpool kept stuck to the game plan looked apart I have to be honest and say I didn't see what happened against Reading so do you want to start with that what <laughs> what on earth happened as Liverpool were dispatched 3-0 by Reading at home it was an interesting one to say the least you know um, I think from the opening whistle they sort of had us on the back foot um, and like for the first 10 minutes certainly you know they could have been 2-3-0 up within the first 10 minutes which isn't dissimilar to the way we played them last and I think it was in the spring series they went 2-0 up within 10 minutes then against yeah. us so um, you know, it just took till half time to get their two goals this time. Um, and then it felt like in the second half, we really came out strong. We came out fighting. It felt like the third goal was going to be the crucial one, whoever got that next. And then unfortunately, you know, we made a little bit of an error at the back and, and they got it. It was sparked by a by a Farrah Williams goal. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's now, she's left, has she left Arsenal to go to Reading or is this alone? No, she's left Arsenal. She's left yeah. Arsenal to go to Reading. So she's gone from Liverpool to Arsenal to Reading across the three seasons and she scored an absolutely brilliant goal. She did. I mean, it's um, it's it was a wonderful goal. You know, you can't really take that away from her. Um, it sort of comes back out to her, and she's um, she's in space just out the eighteen yard box, and she hits it on the volley, and it just 
gives Siobhan Chamberlain no chance. Um, and also, you know, speaking about Farrah Williams, the control that she had over the midfield in that game alone, you know, it really showed, you know, she shows her class, you know, she's England's most capped player of all time. And a lot of people who sort of write her off these days saying, you know, she's too old, she's past it, she's got no pace left. But the control she had over that midfield, you know, it really, it, it did show. Why do people think she's past it? I mean, it, it strikes me, is that just something that didn't work out at Arsenal or Possibly, is there more yeah. to it? It, it? it seems to be the go-to thing in the women's game is once a player gets to a certain age, they just get written off as, you know, that they're, they're past it. So I think you know, she didn't really have a very good Euros and she didn't have a good couple of seasons at, at Arsenal, but she's come to Red now and it looks to be a really good move for her. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it looks as though it could be fantastic for her if she's getting those sorts of results. So then there's the second, and it, it seems as though I read your match report on it. It was difficult to see that, you know, before leading up to the break there, Reading were the better side. Liverpool, for whatever reason, just never really properly got motoring in that first half. Yeah, we just couldn't seem to get going. You know, I think you're seeing it was completely different against Everton, whereas we were very patient um, in our build-up build play, and Everton just seemed to be going to try and take us out one by one. Um Whereas against Redden, you know, we just couldn't seem to get a string of a pass together. Um, we just sort of couldn't get the ball in midfield. Um, they had the England midfield as well, which is, you know, probably important to say. They have Farrah Williams, they've got Joe Potter and they had Jade Moore in there as well. So, you know, that's the England three in midfield. Um, so, I think Redden could be like a very underrated side this season. And they could well surprise a few sides, not they just could Liverpool. Do, yeah, they surprised us. So. <laughs> it's, it's, the next part of this becomes the, um, become you know, shifts over to the conversation about the Everton game where... Mm-hmm. You mentioned there that, that Everton were just sort of taking turns to kick Liverpool. It was, yeah. I mean, I was watching it on television, um, mostly perpetually outraged. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was an interesting approach in that, you know, it was designed, I think, to knock Liverpool off the stride. I think that's mm-hmm. the most interesting thing about the fact that they looked, they looked at Scott's, Scott Rogers' side and felt they needed to disrupt and disturb them. Yeah. Liverpool just didn't let it happen. No, it was, um, I thought it was a really impressive team performance <laughs> that night from the Reds. You know, I think. I think it was like the 70th minute when we got the opening goal and it was just it just felt like it was coming. It felt like it was only a matter of time until we got the opening goal. Um and then obviously we get the, the second goal in injury time, but it was a comfortable win. You know, it, it was. We, we were on we were very much on top, I thought, throughout the game. Um Unfortunately not to have at least one penalty, possibly two. Yeah, exactly. And I thought as well, uh, I thought Bethany England had a fantastic debut up front. You know, she just didn't didn't stop going. Um, and she could have had a hat trick to her name. Yeah, she, I think she got um, denied by Lizzie Jorach a few times off the line. It was interesting how, when you say that you felt as though it was coming, that Liverpool spent the entirety of the game just very slowly turning the screw, mm-hmm. and that struck me as very different from last season. In that last season, there was a lot of a lot of high scoring games. Liverpool were yeah. involved in a lot of action, and and this one, while they were the better side, while they were on top, it wasn't this feeling that the. You, you, as you say, it was coming. It was coming for the Reds. Yeah, I think you know, and ignoring the Redden game, I thought we were really tight at the back, you know, against Everton, and we sort of. I think last season when you had like we we won, but we we'd concede loads of goals at the same time, so we weren't very tight. We were good going forward, but we were conceding as well. Um, whereas against Everton, I think we just. I think they had it all. Yeah. Who stood out then? Uh, you've mentioned Beth England there as well. Mm-hmm. That she was she was playing really strongly on a debut. But who who was it? Who, who, the feeling was that stood out across the certainly in the first game against Everton. Who was the, who was the star performer for the Reds? I thought Laura Coombs was excellent um, against Everton. You know she was box to box. She was defending one minute and then you know putting a crossing up at the other end um, the next minute. I thought Alex Greenwood as well. It's 
again, you've named the two younger players there yeah. as well. I mean, that that's is this part of the the question mark around this Liverpool side this season in that they're able to to to, to run a Merseyside derby on the one hand, but then it could be that there are, there are one or two results where, for whatever reason, because mm-hmm. they haven't got that consistency, they're not used to that yet. That they're not quite going to necessarily start every game where where we want them. Yeah, I suppose like when you compare midfield to midfield against Redden, you know they had a three very senior type players in their side who've played in international tournaments, whereas Caroline Weir, Lord of Coombs, haven't really got that kind of experience yet. You know, Caroline Weir's just got back from the Euros, but that was her first tournament. So, you know, I've, they'll learn more from that than, than they would if they've, if they've thrashed them. So I've got to take that from it. I've got to take something from it. <laughs> <laughs> got to find a positive somewhere yeah. in all of this. Mark Harris um, came back as well. Yeah. She's been 16 months out, she's had, so it was fantastic to see her come off the bench and put a few tackles in at the end. Is there, on all of this, then looking to the Chelsea game next before we have a, have a conversation about the game in general, because mm-hmm. there's been another change uh, planned for next season. But is there, is there a, a feeling of trepidation about this Chelsea game? They've started the season so intently, Chelsea. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, last season it was Manchester City, I think everybody's worried about, but this Chelsea side do look to business. Yeah, I think as well, if you look at our last couple of results against Chelsea, I'm hoping the last, the one in the spring series was an anomaly, you know, 7-0, getting beat by them. It uh, wasn't a good day out. And then the, but they've the, just scored six. They've just scored six against Sunderland, so anything less than six, you know. <laughs> but no, but, And then last season we got beat by them 6-3. And I, I mean, I don't think we've beat them for about three years. So I think, especially coming back off that Redding game, you know, maybe people will be looking at it going, oh, Liverpool are going to get thrashed. But Chelsea are going to be right in the middle of their first Champions League fixtures of the year. And um, it's they go straight into knockouts in the women's game so they'll play Bayern Munich on Wednesday night and then we play them Saturday lunchtime so we play them just a couple of days later and then they fly to Munich a few days later so yeah. I'm thinking are they going to rest a few players even if they do rest a few players they've still got a very strong bench but you know I think I think we can be more than a match for them and the, the, they as you say they're because it is knockout there's no room for manoeuvre for them is no, that they've, exactly. got to, they've got to get it right in that first leg and they've got to also be planning to get it right in the second leg if yeah. it doesn't go right they get themselves into real trouble especially with it being a home game the first leg you know you'd think they'll, they'll put their strongest 11 out so um, you know I don't know I think Saturday lunchtime as well it, it, it's a good I think it's a good time for us in general, then, I've noticed more people talking about the game. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think that it helped a bit on BT, the first game being the Merseyside derby. I mean, this is all very anecdotal, but I noticed that more people were aware of this of this game as it was going on the first yeah. game of the season. And, you know, you do sort of hope that there is a bit of a move here. And I think it's a change that can be applauded, the one that's been announced to go to a 14-team first division next season in that mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the conversations we've had in the past is about regularity of games number of games the idea of the two cup competitions plus a 26 game season yeah. does you know it does grow the game it does grow the opportunity but what it also does is it creates the idea of people coming as a habit mm-hmm. rather than just every now and again and us having habitual conversations rather than regular ones yeah, um, the FA have announced that they're moving the league to a full-time professional one. So clubs have got to basically reapply now for their place in the top league. I think they're hoping to attract a few more Premier League clubs into it as well, like Southampton, who've got a good women's set-up um, with their youth team, and possibly even Man United, who've got a very good youth set-up. Um, I think it is a positive move on the whole. I think there's still a lot of questions around it because they just seem to you know, swing these changes every year. Yeah, does it sort of um, need to... Do they almost yeah. need to say, we're doing this, but then we're going to look at this for three years and we're going to stick with this for they three years? Because stick with something. Yeah, I think because you know they've only just changed it to the Winter League and we've only just had promotion and relegation the last couple of years throughout the entire pyramid and this yeah. winter move was to realign the league with the entire pyramid so now they're, sitting, they're cutting off again so there's no, going to be no relegation I don't think from this new league it's going to be very much that is your teams and they've said um, if they can't get enough teams to fill a 14 team league that they'll fill it with 8 and then you'll play each other three times or something like that well, that doesn't bode well 
No. That bit doesn't. I mean, no. I didn't realise that. I thought it was just a flat 14. So no, that, that it is... depends on the uh, the strength of the applications from the clubs. So, I mean, Liverpool shouldn't have any problems, you'd have thought, because I think Liverpool are pretty professionalised across the board. Liverpool have got a professional side, so we should be fine. It's teams like Sunderland that you'd be worried about, teams like Yeovil, um, even Durham and WSL2. You've got teams there that have been building up a fan base and... And I think a lot of their fans feel a bit let down by the FA and that they've restructured the league, going to restructure the league yet again and these teams are going to be, you know, passed back down. So is there is there a fear, therefore, that they will just basically find themselves... Will there be a WSL 2 or is that going in this part of this That's proposal? going. I think that's going completely. They're going to, um, they're going to rebrand WSL 2 is what they've said. So... So it'll be could become, you don't know yet. Okay, yeah. I mean it, it's. I, I I presumed it was more more fleshed out. It's a good job that you're on the show, really, to let me know. <laughs> I thought I thought it was it was looking pretty settled and towards hitting fourteen. It it would be a profound shame if it didn't because if it does yeah. just go to eight teams playing each other three times, that's not no. that's not conducive to what the league wants to become. No, no, and it's exactly what happens in America. I don't think I don't think that's good enough. You know, I'd like to see more variety. And as a football fan, I like having promotion and relegation. I like seeing different teams come up every, up every year and getting to go to new grounds and things like that. So I'd like to hopefully see that reintroduced at some point in the future but I do think it's a positive move because in professional football you can see the difference in the clubs that have gone professional you know the players get better and better each season so it can be a positive move but I think you're going to need a lot of help from the FA to help the clubs maybe who are a little bit lower down and maybe just don't meet the requirements you know hopefully the FA will help them out Okay, uh, always good to speak to Heather and have her come in and talk about the uh, women's football and we're going to be doing this throughout the course of the season she's going to come in and we're going to get a few guests have a few conversations longer versions of those conversations on the podcast of the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk so if we feel as though we've got a lot to talk about what we'll do is we'll just take it outside of the radio show and you can download it to listen to the full conversation as the season wears on uh, we did do a special if you didn't get the opportunity to hear it it is freely available theanfieldwrap.com uh, you can find on there we did a special before a ball was kicked this season interviewing a wide range of players and the manager uh, and working through the expectations for the season for Liverpool so that's available as well uh, and going through everything else that we've done um, on this week's show uh, you can obviously get from all good bookshops you can get Scott Murray's book The Title uh, if you want to do that it's very much worth reading uh, you can get Michael Cox's book The Mixer uh, and again all of these books should be available together uh, and we mentioned uh, Liverpool Sound City you can get those early bird tickets as well and when's the next home game for Liverpool ladies Heather? Next home game is on the 11th of October It's I think it's a 7 o'clock clock kickoff against Sheffield in the Continental Cup so should be a good one should be a good one if you can get down for that one on the 11th of October uh, to see Liverpool ladies up against Sheffield uh, in the Continental Cup so you can get yourself along to that so thank you to everyone who's contributed to this week's show it's been another fantastic Anfield wrap and we'll be back with more of this sort of stuff next week Sports Social Podcast Network